Good morning. My name is Wendell Moses. I'm substitute teaching today for Tim Jennings. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, one brief announcement. I was just told that a member of our class passed away this past week, Ruth Asgarrison. So remember her family and whatnot. Apparently, unexpectedly, she went to the hospital for an acute um, event and went downhill quickly. Went from bad to worse in a matter of short period of time. So remember the family and uh, apparently Lori, um, her daughter is also a member of our class and, and, and her husband. So anyway, let's bow our heads for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to before you to worship you, to talk about you, to learn of you. Send your spirit into this room, into our hearts and our minds. Give us enlightenment. Control what we say and what we think in combination with you. May we honor you. Be with those who listen live and be with those who will hear this message at a later date. May this be done to your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this is lesson number nine from our study in the book of Matthew. Um, The title of the lesson is Idols of the Soul and Other Lessons from Jesus. The memory text is from Matthew 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'd like to preface um, uh, this discussion with a question, a personal question for you and for me. And what is your idol? Okay, it talks about idols of the soul. What is your idol? The, um, the photo illustration for the lesson quarterly this week had uh, three superimposed photographs or drawings or whatever. One was a boat, some might call a yacht. Um, one was a football game. And one was a credit card. Okay? So, you know, just trying to play what they're thinking is idols, their favorite possession or wealth or whatever. Um, sports or in the bottom credit card wealth or lack thereof. Um, I know of people who have those as their idols. But that's very few. Very few. Um, I recently bought a car. And someone asked me if it was my idol. Okay? Um, and I'll say, no, it's a way of getting back from here to there, and it has an optional roof. Okay? <laughs> um, some necessary aspects of a car I drive is it has a, ne- a, a, a roof. But, um, you know, what is typical for idols in the people that you know? I mean, I don't know of very many people that have a boat like is pictured in that picture. Okay. I know of a lot of people who enjoy football and to maybe to an extreme degree. You know, I had to be careful what I say in the operating room, um, depending upon what crew I have with me. Um, I think if I were to pick out the, the most common idols that I witness on a daily basis, it's a person's physical appearance in the mirror. Okay. It's how fast a person can run a prescribed distance, whether that be a 100-yard dash or a mile or a marathon or whatever. That is someone's idol. 
It can be a number on the bathroom scale. Okay? Just um, your thoughts on what is idols and what does it constitute to be an idol? Something that you put in front of God. Good. Uh, time is my idol. Yeah. My time. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I very jealously guard my time. Okay. I think it's your predominant focus or what you focus on the most. Okay. So, uh, my kind of definition was ideas, thoughts, concepts, uh, p- your position or attitude that separates you from God. Whatever it is that prevents us from becoming servants for those we were meant to serve. What prevents you from doing your real job. Okay? It's not important what your idol is. Anything that beckons you to loosen your hold on God or distracts you or occupies your time or controls your thoughts is dangerous to you. Why? I I would submit that just like with sins and sin, there's idols and there's the idol of self. If you don't have God as your, you know, has your worship, you are your idol. You are you feed that what I like, what I want, what I my money, my time, my 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 everything, to the exclusion or or limitation of loving your brother as yourself. So self is your idol. Okay. Okay, let's read the first paragraph in the study guide. It says, as human beings, we are products of our environment, of our culture. These greatly shape our values, beliefs, and attitudes. Whether you were raised in a big metropolitan area or in a village with no clean water, it makes no difference. The culture, well, it may not be it, but anyway, it makes no difference. The culture, the environment that you grew up in has greatly made you what you are. And if you're able to go to a new environment, the one you have been raised in will leave its mark on you until the grave. I think our parents, our parental environment and whatnot. I have, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a um, pediatric orthopedic surgeon that um, is employed by the local children's hospital. And um, I'm constantly beset with environment. Because no matter what the treatment is or the disease is or the condition is that I need to take care of, if the environment is not conducive to that treatment, then there's no point in me even bringing it forward. Um, I ask of your prayers because I have a patient coming in on Monday who came in to see me three months ago. and I said, come back in three months. We'll talk about it. And the Lord hasn't given me insight and I haven't come up with the idea of what I'm going to do because the environment is such that I cannot do what is ideal for that patient, and I don't know what else to do. I have no idea. But um, we are controlled by our environments to a large degree. We are captives of our heritage. You know, I'm blessed by having the parents I did. They taught me to work. You know, my dad's, my dad's ideal simply stated was 
Son, if you're dropped anywhere in the world, I want you to be able to survive. And I think he did a good job of that. Sometimes I maybe don't do things that are good for survival, but that's beside the point, you know. So anyway, all right. Um, The second paragraph ends with, it's just so hard for us to see because we are so immersed in our culture and environment. Uh, When I read that, what do you think of when you think about you can't see because of your environment? A text that came to my mind was in John 3, 3, when Christ was meeting with Nicodemus. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. I always read that up until recently with, unless you're born again, you cannot see, as in you cannot be saved. You cannot be go to heaven. You cannot whatever. But I think it also means that you can't even comprehend what you're seeing about the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't register. I sent my brother-in-law a book that I thought was very insightful. Because of his paradigm, he could see no benefit in it and mailed it back. I don't think he got very far into it until he realized that this was a book that he did not appreciate and he just mailed it back to me. Okay, We cannot see things without perception and where we're coming from. Okay? The final thought on, on Saturday afternoon's um, left lesson is, if love is serving others, then whoever serves more is the greatest in love and the kingdom of heaven. So therefore, God is a servant of all, It's almost unbelievable when you think about that. He is truly the servant of all. All of God's attributes and being are used for the holding together of the universe and giving of himself for his children throughout the universe. And that's why he's the greatest. Others look at him and say he's the greatest because he has the most power. But truly he's greatest because he's the best and the greatest at service. And Wendell, just this past week, for some reason, the idea of linking the creation with Jesus' kneeling down and washing his disciples' feet at the Last Supper came as a surprise to me that that same God who would have all the power would give us the Sabbath, it's the seventh day, to think about it, to serve us. The Sabbath was given for man, to serve us, to keep us connected. And Jesus and John, it says, knowing that, realizing that all power in heaven and earth had been given to him, took out his outer garment, knelt down, and washed his disciples' feet. At that point in time, he already knew all power was given to him. And what did he do with that power? He served. It's incredible. Both creation and at the end of his life, he was seen to be all powerful and yet serving. Incredible. You know, he. I tried to wear a tie on the Sabbath that has something to do with about creation. Today it's bugs. Okay? I don't know if you've ever seen a bug collection. Now, at one time in high school biology, I had to collect bugs and turn them in on a cardboard, you know, with little pins in them and all that sort of stuff. Being the procrastinator I was at the time, I um, some of them were still wiggling on, on the pin. <laughs> 
you know, you're supposed to put them in the chloroform for so many minutes. Well, I didn't have that many minutes. And so, um, but I have, I have seen, been to a museum where they had drawers and drawers of bugs and the incredible diversity and what they function as and everything else is incredible. I mean, whether the, whether it's the stars you look at, whether it's the bugs you look at, whether it's the fish or whatever, incredible creator God. And yet, as you say, he knelt in front of 12 people's feet, one who was going to betray him. All of who were going to betray him. In one way or another, they all deserted him, or yeah. uh, betrayed him, or actually you know, denied him. All of them, every single one, that very same day. Okay, all right. Moving on to Sunday's lesson. Um, reading the second paragraph, it talks about the greatness of humility. Reading the second paragraph, the problem, however, comes in defining greatness. How easy for our fallen human minds to understand the concept in a way that vastly differs from God's view. And they give us Ecclesiastes 9, a 10 to read, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going, or the grave. Is trying hard with all your might truly greatness? Now, my daughter is getting her PhD in chemistry in Southern California. If I tried with all my might, I, I got a chemistry degree many years ago. It was a lesser degree, but it's still a degree. If I tried with all my might at the current time, I would not make very good headway in that chemistry class that she's doing. Okay? With all due respect. Okay? Is trying hard truly greatness? You know, this current culture, we have become a society that arbitrarily rewards participation and effort. Okay? So children are, receive trophies for being on a team. Whether the team wins or loses or whatever, they're on the team so they get a trophy at the end of the, in the season. Workers are rewarded for being on a team. Matthew 18, 1 through 4, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I've been struggling with this all week. I'm a children's doctor. Okay, um, let's see. I mean, uh, I'm supposed to read the first sentence of paragraph three. Two, yes. Go on, just the idea about the greatness and the working hard. Uh-huh. Uh, my Bible sent me to Colossians three twenty-three, and it maybe expands on the idea of with you okay. your might. It says, "Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart." So it's like the passion. Maybe it was talking about just you know that kind of a. You know, doing it with all your might, as opposed to white knuckling it, it's do. Okay. More passion. Okay. Energy behind it because of that, not just because you're white knuckling it. All right. Your daughter's ability to go to PhD is because it's more her passion. It is her passion. And that it was yours. Yeah, that's true. Very much so true. To define true greatness, Jesus called a child to stand before him and said, and then we read the, the passage. 
Okay? I have a couple questions regarding this and statements. Christ lived in a particular time and era. People act differently now than then, I believe. Okay? Those of you who are, okay, today's my birthday, I'm getting older. Okay? People who are my age and older, okay, I'm just speaking to those of us, okay? When we grew up, children acted differently than they do now. Our culture was is, was different, okay? Behavior is different. What are the characteristics of children now? When During this week, I, I see patients in the office Mondays and Thursdays, and um, because my partner left, I'm kind of hectic right now, but... All week was a zoo of children acting indecently. And I'm talking from nine months old onward. I think that both as heredity and environment has conditioned us to teach our children differently or not teach them, um, as the case may be. We are teaching them certain behaviors and attitudes and whatnot. And I'm not certain that I would have chosen most of the children that I saw this week as being an example of humility. <laughs> I mean, just, just saying, okay? So, is there currently a better metaphor now of humility? It's hard to come up. Yes. Jesus of Nazareth. Ah, but I mean it, that you have grown across this week. Okay? You know, going back, I had to go back to this talk. I read this text over and over this week because it just, it didn't, it didn't register for me. Okay? Until I came back and read verse four. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think God chose an example of humility in the children. He probably had several to choose from. He chose a humble example of children and brought that child in. Probably the child who was not the best in the street gang that was running by. Or, or whatever. Okay? And so I think we have to be careful at what metaphors we choose to illustrate what God is like. The devil is a master at portraying God as having the attributes of Satan himself. Okay? We need to ask for divine guidance to mold our thoughts and ideas and ideals of those about who God truly is and what he's truly like. Our concept of God will determine the people that we become. Mother Teresa or Muhammad Atta, the pilot of one of the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Both of them believe strongly in God. Their concept of what God was like were miles apart. And what it led them to do and how it led them to mold their character was miles apart. 
I almost didn't want to use his name because I don't like to think about, you know, I think brain food, you know, what you think about is your brain food. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And I want to add that if your God doesn't match all those things in all respects, at all times, then we have a problem. Yes? Even in that example that you gave of Mother Teresa and I don't know the other Good. person's name. Good. If you, th- if you think about Saul of Tarsus or Paul, he was raised in one thing, but God himself showed him a different way. I really think it has to do with your heart because I know people who have been raised non-Adventists such as myself and God himself showed me the truth. So I really do think it applies more to the heart than the environment around you. Okay, good. Yes? Um, I think when Jesus says we should become little children, what he's actually saying is that we can be approachable and teachable. Because children are eager to learn, and I think he wants us to be eager to learn. I knew you were going to bring your grandkids into this. <laughs> you know, I, you have to be careful because, you know, some people think their grandkids are perfect, you know, and are kind and teachable. No, no, that's, 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 sorry, sorry. <laughs> All right, moving on to Monday's lesson. All right. The greatness of forgiveness. The first paragraph. One of the worst consequences of the fall is seen in interpersonal relationships. From Adam trying to blame Eve for his sin to this moment on earth today, our race has been ravaged and degraded by conflict between individuals. Unfortunately, conflicts are just in the world, are not just in the world, but in the church as well. They ask us to read... um, a passage from Matthew 18, 15 through 35. It's a fairly long passage, but as soon as I start reading any of it, you'll get the gist of what it is. Um, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go to show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. And it goes on the steps of, of Christian reconciliation. Okay? And then it goes on. At the end of that little statement of how the steps of reconciliation, verse 19, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that you, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And goes on with that little statement. And then in verse 21, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And he said 70, and then he went on and told a parable about um, a king who was, or a ruler who was settling accounts with his servants and someone who was, wasn't able to pay him back, he forgave him. The guy went out and about strangled a, a person who owed him a few cents. And so um, it was an illustration of forgiveness and not forgiveness and forgiving heart. So, based on that um, discussion or whatever, 
how is reconciliation in this first text, the steps of reconciliation, connected or related to the issue in the last 15 verses that we just referred to? It's all part of one, as it reads, it's all part of one discourse. And yet, how is the steps of reconciliation related to the parable of forgiveness? It's all based on God's love. Okay. Any other thoughts? At what point does forgiveness take place when we are wronged by someone who has wronged us? Whereas the passage says, sins against you or whatever. At what point is forgiveness in there? When we go to reconcile with them. When we go to reconcile with them? Before. Before. We go to reconcile it. So what's the purpose of reconciliation? You should carry out what's in your heart. I mean, you've already dealt with it in your heart, and now you're going to go and try to accomplish the same thing for them. Whether they will or won't is not relevant. It's what happened in your heart to, to encourage you to go and seek reconciliation. Okay. So... We need to forgive someone their wrongs against us before we try to make reconciliation. And that reconciliation is not for our benefit. We may benefit from it because we have won back a brother or sister. Okay? But we are to try to restore the individual because we know what damage it will do to him as a natural consequence of whatever has happened. Okay? Um, that brings us to forgiveness. And um, for those of you who um, have read Tim's book, you know, uh, Could It Be This Simple? There's a chapter in there about forgiveness. It's, and I just want to make sure, sh- I want to go back over because I haven't heard it discussed in a class recently. I've missed a few classes, so maybe it was discussed. If it is, I apologize. But he lists seven myths of forgiveness. And I'd just like to stepwise go through those. Um, oops, and I got to a different page. There it is. So, f- number one, forgiveness comes after people say they are sorry. No, it should. We forgive before they ever ask. Okay? Number, the second myth God's forgiveness equals salvation. You think about it. When he was on the cross, when he was being crucified, Father, forgive them. That doesn't mean that everyone there will be saved, be restored, be healed to trustworthy individuals who would appreciate and enjoy heaven. How terrible to be forever in a place you did not like. Number three, forgiving someone means that what that person did was okay. No. Number four, forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. That's, that's a fear. Number five, forgiveness means restored trust. 
Just because, you know, someone broke into our house and stole some things, some things that we value very highly. Um, if I met the thief, I can forgive him, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to invite him to live in my basement. Okay? Not until there has been a restoration of relationship can that really occur. Okay? The sixth myth of forgiveness. Forgiveness means forgetting. Forgive and forget. You know, a lot of people have the idea that in heaven, God will have totally forgotten all their sins. Okay? So, um, I forget if this was in the book or if this was just an illustration that Tim's used in other times, but if your child um, steals a cookie from the cookie jar when they know they're not supposed to be eating the cookies or whatever, and you told them, these, these cookies are reserved for a party, and, they, and you realize that now there's four cookies gone, and you had counted them out and, and decorated them everything else for a specific event, you know, after the child has been restored to relationship with you, Every time you see that child coming around the corner, you say, that little thief? <laughs> no. It's, it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean you have forgotten that they stole four cookies from you and that the party had to be take another issue. Okay? It means that your relationship has been restored. It doesn't mean that you've forgotten it. Okay? And the seventh myth of forgiveness that he lists is Forgiveness means that the guilty person gets away with it. We've talked a lot in this room about law. Mandated law or created law or whatever, and natural law. Someone inherits the results of sin regardless of whether they have um, been restored sometimes. Okay? David. David repented of his sin with Bathsheba, and yet it destroyed his family to the point where his son had um, set up a tent on top of the, of the palace so that everyone could see while he went in and had sexual relationships with all his mother, his stepmothers or whatever I call them, okay? Because he was now the king, you know, destroyed the family. Someone got killed over it, you know, the, the niece or whatever got um, killed, and then the other one, the whole, all the guys got killed, and everything else, etc. It destroyed his family. Even though David repented of his sin, was forgiven of his sin by God, he still had consequences that occurred in his life because of that destruction, that destructive event. Yes. I was just thinking when you said that forgiveness um, means that the relationship is restored. I don't think that that means that in all things, because there are some things that you cannot restore a relationship if you are a victim. So forgiveness can be just praying for that person and in your heart praying that they will get their life right with God and never revealing to that person because you would place yourself in a bad situation. So forgiveness can be between you and God, right? It's between you and God, but it's also between you and your relationship with that individual. You may have forgiven that individual, but that individual maybe has not changed. And, and you, you cannot um, create union with acid. Right, that's what I'm saying. Okay? 
It doesn't mean that you are still holding anything against that individual. And you may feel very sorry for the individual that that individual is destroying himself with or herself with behaviors or attitudes or whatever, beliefs or whatever. But um, it doesn't mean that that person has become well. Okay? The thing that I think of is most people are like a campfire. You're, you're close. I mean, people who are really wounded and never heal. So they're actually doomed to hurt everybody else that they ever come in contact with. And they can never have what they truly want because they're warped inside. And so you, as a victim, you can look at that person as so damaged that instead of like a campfire at a certain distance or warm, but the closer you get, the more you get burnt, you just happen to be too close to the raging fire that is that person. If a person remains a raging fire, it's not reasonable to get close again to that person. But it does help you to understand and forgive and pray for that person because as a child of God, who they are, although they don't, they've rejected that apparently and aren't healed, you know, it is a sad condition for a perpetrator to be in, to ruin everybody's life that they touch, to damage, to, to destroy, to hurt everybody that they touch, never get what they truly want, which, which would be a close, wonderful relationship with people and stuff because of who they've become. That is so very sad, and it makes it easier to forgive them because you just got too close to their raging fire. So forgiveness is something that happens in us, not what happens onto someone else. Okay, It may result in our behavior change or whatever, but it's something that happens in us. It's for our benefit as well, or maybe predominantly. The first sentence of the second paragraph on Monday's lesson says, let's face it, it's easier to go behind someone's back to complain about him or her than go directly to the person and deal with the issue. Why? Confrontation is hard. Okay. Confrontation is hard. Why is it, why is it so hard? The more important a relationship is to you, the less you want to rock that that boat of relationship. So if you need to confront a person with something, you fear that doing that will ruin or change the relationship in a way you don't want them want it to. You're liable to keep that either more to yourself. So the more important a relationship is to you, the less likely you are to want to rock that relationship by confronting with the truth. The, but, the more but, important it is that you do it. I was going to say, if, if you don't re- resolve this issue, though, what does it do to the relationship? It dissolves it. Yeah. It damages. But, I mean, that's why you ask, why wouldn't we want to do it? And that's why, yeah. ultimately, we don't want to damage or destroy the relationship we have, even though that will happen if we don't do it. I can think of some episodes in my life in which I didn't want to, for, I didn't want to reconcile with the individual because I hadn't forgiven them yet, number one, you know? I was selfish about what I wanted to do, number two. Jesus had no problem doing it. He did it with Peter. He did. And Peter loved him so much, and he loved Peter so much, and it was a good thing that he did it. Yes. Hey, ask, ask yourself the question, why did Jesus, why was he not afraid to, to confront? Because he loved 
He yeah. loved perfectly. Fear, he, fear, fear was not in his paradigm. Ah, he had, he had no fear. So often we are fearful Correct. of the consequence of the... Of being perceived as something we don't want to be perceived as, as the fear of, quote, damaging the relationship. But love does what's in the other's best interest, period. Amen. Yeah, fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that I'm a damaged individual. I ha, I am a fallen individual with fallen traits and fallen tendencies or whatever. I have not been perfectly restored, and so I fear that I may be exposed for who truly I am as this imperfect individual. Now. Later on down in the same page, it talks about um, the passage where two or three are gathered. And I think it's interesting that in this portrayal, we often use this statement where two or three are gathered together, God will be there, etc. And we often use it, in, in, you know, I used to belong to a church that had eight members, you know. And, we're, and we, we said that frequently, where two or three are gathered, you know. Um, but this text was given, or this statement was given, in relationship to reconciliation. So, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God the Father, are all in the reconciliation business. In Romans 8, 8.26, the Spirit intercedes for us. 8.28, God is working everything on our behalf. 8.32, God the Father is for us. 8.34, Christ gave all of himself for us. The Holy Spirit is closest. We are, we are actively acting as reconciliation agents for the kingdom. Is he present in small groups with, with believers? Yes. Is he present when we worship with only a few present? Yes. Is he present in a dungeon or a, 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 a solitary cell where someone is imprisoned? Yes. But he's not only present, but actively working when we do the work of reconciliation. Actively being promoted, that is the kind of being that he really is. A being of reconciliation. In the last paragraph, there's a statement that says, but if we don't forgive others the way we have been forgiven by God, we can face dire consequences. Why? Why? That's how life was designed to operate. Yeah. God isn't coming after you if you don't forgive. We will suffer the consequences of not forgiving. Okay? God isn't coming after us. That statement, we can face dire consequences. What level of moral development is evidenced by that statement? It appears it, it falls within the fear range, so it has to be in verse four. Right. It's not looking out the interests of others. It's right. it's it's fear and you know contract. You know, I do something, he does something. You know, so forgiveness is not some not only something we do, but who we are. It's a characteristic of a loving individual. 1 Corinthians 13.5 in the New American Standard says, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Or the Good News translation, Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Think about it. In our relationship to God, 
in the final judgment of sin and sinners, does God keep a record of wrongs if He's truly a God of love? No. He makes a diagnosis that we are unsavable, that we are damaged, we have not been healed, and He can do nothing more for us. Can I make a little, while you're looking? <laughs> yep, you bet. It's interesting that, that God links um, our forgiveness of others with His forgiveness of us. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting link. And you would think, well, you know, He's going to hold back His forgiveness because if we don't forgive others, He's not going to forgive us. But I think it's a, a link that tries to say, if you cannot forgive others, you can't understand my forgiveness either. You cannot be a recipient. No. Not because of God's doing, but because of yours. You're, you've changed your heart to the point where you can't receive what He has to give. Okay. And it would be unjust for God to protect us if we won't forgive our neighbor. Tell me about this word just. To me, I use the word right. It wouldn't be right. Why wouldn't it be right? It's because that's not how we were designed. That's not how the universe was designed. It's not an imposed thing. It's just how we are made. How the universe works. Going on to Thursday's lesson, I want to just talk about something about um, Thursday, etc. And um, the, it talks about reading the Matthew twenty twenty through twenty seven. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee, children with her son, Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said to him, Grant that this my two sons may sit the one at thy right side and the other at thy left in thy kingdom. And Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? They said unto him, We are able. He said to them, You shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with my baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand and to sit in my left is not mine to give but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called, to, called them unto him and said, You know not the princes of the Gentiles, you know not the princes of the Gentiles exercise domination over them, and, and that they are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall be, or it shall not be, so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to minister unto, be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, so, mother, my mom, and my brother and I go to Jesus and say, hey. We want to be first, all right? And the quarterly says, well, wait a minute. Go over and read Luke 9. Luke 9, 51 to 56, to tell what kind of brothers these are. Now, this is just before Christ is crucified, okay? Christ is announced... I'm going to Jerusalem. And instead of going straight to Jerusalem, he goes a roundabout way, 
saying, I'm on the way to Jerusalem. The anointed one is going on the way to Jerusalem. Always before he says, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Because he didn't want to, he didn't want things to happen too soon. But now he knows this is his final journey. He's on the way to Jerusalem. And this story takes place. Someone read Luke 9, 51 through 56. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Okay, so this is shortly before the crucifixion, all right? James and John says, wait a minute, you know, let's call fire down on these people. Okay, so just a couple questions to set the stage, right? Where did this take place? Samaria, okay? Now, geographically, there was Judah, which was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, okay? And Israel, the other ten tribes, right? So where did this occur? This occurred in the ten tribes section, right? Samaria, all right? And they were headed, they were headed to Jerusalem where the temple was, all right? So who was the purebred? The Judas, right? Who were the half-breed infidels? The Samaritans, right? So if just a little history, when they were captured, when Judah was captured and sent off to Babylon and they came back, they were trying to build the wall, tried to build, rebuild the, the, the um, temple, and the Samaritans came over and said, hey, we want to join in. And But they also wanted to bring their own religious practices with them into this thing. And they said, no, 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 we're going to say pure. It's happened again. And so there was all this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, these half-breeds that were mixed with the Syrians and others from around there. Okay? Um, the Samaritans were not allowed to enter the temple to worship. They had to stay out in the outer court if they ever wanted to worship. And in fact, if you read in John 4, where Christ is a woman with the well, she says, wait a minute, you guys say well, you have to um, worship a certain place, but we worship over in a different hill. Okay? And now which is the right hill? It's kind of di- try to divert Christ out from his mission. So, as this story unfolds of John and, and uh, um, James and John calling fire down on these people, um, they were located in Samaria. What else happened in Samaria? For those of you who want to, I'm not going to take time to, to read the whole thing, but for those of you who want to, turn to Second Kings 1 and 2. The first two chapters of Second Kings. This also happened in Israel. Okay? Now, this is a story that we often don't read to our children. Okay? Elijah. Elijah after Mount Carmel. You know, there was all this apostasy. Elijah, there was a, a famine that was ordained as a lesson to bring them back to God. And Elijah came, Mount Carmel, fire came, came took up the offering and the stones burnt everything to the ground. And then Elijah killed all the false prophets, or had them killed, 
400 and something people, if you imagine that. That was a bloodbath. Okay? And then he ran in front of the chariot back to the temple. And it was raining. And he's out sleeping under the temple wall somewhere, trying to stay dry. Cold, dry, hungry after running 20 miles. Think of that after running a marathon. Okay? He lost his courage and started fleeing for his life from Jezebel. Okay? Ended up on a mountain. God revealed himself to it. And after that, he then continued to minister as the prophet of Israel, which we now call Samaria. He was, he was the, the minister, not to, to Ahab and Jezebel in Jerusalem. He was the minister or the prophet to the ten tribes of Israel. Okay? The king that was of that Israel didn't like him and sent a, a group of 50 soldiers and the captain of 50 up to him as he sat on a hill. And what did Elijah, this righteous man, do? He said, if I'm a man of God, then fire's going to come down out of heaven and going to burn you up. And what happened? It did. Okay? So what did the king do? Ah, I'm going to send 50 more. So he sent 50 more along with the, the, the head of the 50. And what did Elijah do? If I'm a man of God, then fire's going to come down and destroy you. And it happened. Okay? And so what did the king do? He sent 50 more. And Elijah said, if I'm a man of... And the guy said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Spare me. Spare me. But he prefaced it by saying, man of God. Spare. He was respectful. He knelt before him and said, listen, oh, please save my life. I've got wife and kids. You know, these guys had nothing to do with this. It's the king you're after. You know, spare me. Okay? So where'd this occur? Right near Mount, Mount Carmel. Okay? So, the disciples in Christ down the road to a little village, and they see in the foreground Mount Carmel. Okay, let's also give a timeline to this story about James and John. Okay? If you read... Luke 9.54. Now, we, we started out reading um, Luke 9.51, okay? Oops, I just, sorry. Okay. If you read 9, I'm sorry, if you read Luke 9.18 to 20, just the, the first part of this chapter, okay? What is the story? Who am I? You are the anointed one. You are the anointed one of God. Okay? That had just been declared. He had also declared himself to be the Messiah. Okay? They go into a village. They see Mount Carmel. Here, if anyone's a man of God, this should be it. And yet they rejected him. So, what was wrong with their idea of fire from heaven and Elijah destroying 102 men? What's the difference? Uh, time doesn't time doesn't make us righteous. 
the audience? Um, I think because the far from heaven from Elijah glorified God, and the far from heaven that they wanted to um, burn their enemies was to glorify themselves. If you look at behavior from the outside, what is the difference? Can you tell a difference between righteous behavior and unrighteous behavior? No. Not all. Sometimes you can. Sometimes. Generally you can't. Okay? So I'd just like to read a paragraph from Desire of Ages. Um, This is page 487. Unfortunately, in the notes, um, I got it wrong, but anyway, um, I'll be corrected. Um, 487, the third paragraph. It is no part of Christian to compel men to receive him. It is Satan and men actuated by his spirit that seek to compel the conscience. Under a pretense of zeal for righteousness, men who are confederate with evil angels bring suffering upon their fellow men in order to convert them to their ideas of religion. But Christ is ever showing mercy, ever seeking to win by the revealing of his love. He can admit no rival in the soul, nor accept of partial service, but he desires only voluntary service, the willing surrender of the heart under the constraint of love. There can be no evidence that we possess the spirit of Satan than the disposition to hurt and destroy those who do not appreciate our work or who act contrary to our ideas. I've said before in this class that I have very few friends on Facebook. That's purposeful. I don't want to know what everyone else is doing in the world, you know. Some of the people, I have no clue how they became friends of mine on Facebook. I don't know. I must have hit the wrong button, you know. But I've been amazed by the rhetoric of the election. And I, 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 it hurts to, and it's like, um, I haven't yet unfriended all these people because I guess I at one point thought it was good to have, but I had to say, hide this post, hide this post, hide this post, because I can't, st- I can't stand to read it. You know? We are not f- to be forcing our ideology or our understanding of who God is, no matter how correct that may be. Because when we go to the for- of force, we have left God's camp and we have now gone over someone else's camp. Right. I'd like to close um, with a discussion, a brief mention on Friday's um, little sort thing. They, they had a little thing about natural law, and I just had to respond, okay? And it talked about natural law, and it said the final sentence of Friday's um, discussion was, we need to study God's Word and have the morals, values, and principles that should govern our lives. Nothing else of itself is reliable. Is that statement true? No. Why? I think it is reliable. I, it, I think it is a way of deriving morals and values and principles. I think it should govern my life. But how do you interpret what you read? There are thousands and thousands of followers of the sacred text 
I'd say the majority of the people who are in certain political parties believe they're following God. And they are working actively to enforce their belief in their God. We talk much in here about the evidence-based integrative approach to Bible study. Bible by itself causes fanaticism. Science by itself creates atheism. Experience by itself creates all different philosophies of weird and wonderful things. If you don't believe so, go to, go to Asheville, North Carolina and live there for a little while. But all three together, the Bible, science, and experience combined can help us learn of who God is. But this is not a static process. In 2 Peter 3.18 it says, But continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory now and ever. Amen. We are going to be continuing to grow in knowledge of God forever. I don't mean to throw too many stones about other people who do not have my persuasion or understanding or whatever. But uh, it makes me my heart hurt for people who have a, a picture of God that is not truly loving, that is not truly a servanthood, that is truly not for us but somehow two-faced and he's going to come with a rod of iron that's going to smash us to death or whatever. You know, there's a good metaphor for, for God. You know, to make the accurate diagnosis is important before you give the treatment. Because if you don't, give the, if you don't have the right diagnosis, you'll have the wrong treatment. And it'll be hell. God is a God of love. He loves us more than we know. And we'll be studying that for the rest of eternity. Let's talk. Oh, yes. This one thing that came to mind, Isaiah 30, uh, verse 15. This is what the Holy, the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Yeah. And, and that's because we have a different concept of who God is. What God is truly like. Let's bow. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to learn about you, to study you. May we hear you and understand your voice. May we be discerning in the voices that we hear. May we dwell on those things that will build us up, lead us to you. May we help those around us. May we be truly servants to you and your kingdom. May your kingdom come into our hearts. Amen.